Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. Hey, before I forget, I want to thank Adam for speaking last week. I don't know if you were here, but he spoke last week. He did a phenomenal job. He gave my wife and I a chance to go away. Our friends got married up in Newport, Rhode Island, which was great. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but that was really nice. Kind of fancy up there, okay? But it was, it was nice, cool weather. I mean, for once, like we had a jacket on. It was great. It was, I mean, it was good. Anyway, so we are in week seven of this series that we are calling Let's Try This Again. It is part seven of an eight-part series, which means this whole thing comes to a close next week. I haven't told you how long it is. It's an eight-week series. Sometimes you say that and people are like, oh, it seems kind of long. It is kind of long, but it was good, hopefully. Anyway, we are wrapping this thing up, and, and at its core, this series was about your faith, and it's this idea that so many of us were given our faith, and primarily at this point we're talking about our Christian faith. So many of us were given our faith as children, either by our parents or, or grandparents or maybe an aunt and uncle, whatever the case may be. And as we got older, once we began, began to sort of get, feel the trials and the tribulations and the pressures of adulthood, that began to chip away at our faith and chip away and chip away and, and left us, some of us, with no faith at all. And it's not that we walked away from Christianity, we walked away from God. It just wasn't as important as it used to be. And I think a lot of us just kind of feel like, ah, I just wish, I wish it were better. I wish it were more. I wish it were how it used to be. And so what we've been doing every single week is asking the question, what would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? If we were to sort of hit the reset button and say, all right, let's try this again. And every single week, we have been reinstalling the operating system of Christianity piece by piece, part by part, taking a look at these sort of fundamental building blocks, if you will. We had a lot of good conversations, and it's led to some discoveries for a lot of you. I've gotten some phone calls, which have been very encouraging to me to hear you kind of going through this journey. But there's one topic that we have not covered yet. And it's interesting because this topic is a topic and, and an issue that I've mentioned every single week. I've actually already mentioned it once today, but it's, we have not given an entire day to this topic. And so today is a day. We're going to be talking about faith. And I don't mean like the faith, like Christianity. I mean your faith, the act of believing, the sort of the glue that kind of holds this whole thing together. Because a lot of you, as we've talked about, this faith has been chipped away. This faith for you, for many of us, is kind of almost like a leaky boat in life. We feel like we spend most of our times patching the holes and patching the questions, or rather than this faith holding us up, we're spending most of our time kind of supporting this faith. And if you are someone who feels like you lost your faith, if you are somebody who would fall into that category of having it chipped away and having this leaky faith, and the question that I want us to answer today, or at least put out in front of you for you to begin to sort of meditate on in the coming weeks is... Well, what was the foundation of your lost faith? I mean, if you're somebody who lost your faith, if you're somebody whose faith is shaky or on the precipice of falling into the abyss, what was the foundation of that faith? Now, if you're someone in the room who says, well, you know, John, I've, I've never lost my faith, so I'm just going to check out, don't, okay? Because I know there are people in this room who have been lifelong Christians, who have been Christians for many years, and they've never gotten to a place, or you've never gotten to a place where you lost your faith where you kind of walked away, where you abandoned it. But I'll just tell you this. The issue that we're going to talk about today impacts every single one of us at some level, in some aspect, and at some point in our lives. 
And this issue that we're going to talk about today, I can guarantee is the issue that took many of you out of the game. And it's this issue that I believe that even if you are a Christian, this issue is preventing you from having the kind of faith that you wish that you had. I mean, if you're a person who looks at some Christians and goes, man, I wish I had faith like they did, I guarantee this issue is something that you're struggling with. And, and this issue is not something that just takes you out of the game right away. It's really more like death by a thousand cuts. And eventually it just kind of drains all the life out of you. So let's jump in. Um, when I talk to someone who has lost their faith, when I talk to somebody who is sort of, their faith is in a precarious position, if you will, I notice that they are generally struggling with two issues. And I'm going to call those issues lifestyle decisions and unmet expectations. I think that this combo, more than anything else out there, does more to chip away at the faith of a Christian than anything else. Let me talk to you first about lifestyle decisions. So this is this idea, I'll give you a couple of examples. Today it's a lot of examples. Lifestyle decisions is this idea that, like, let's say you were raised in a home that frowned upon dishonesty. Okay, most homes don't sort of elevate that, but let's just go with me, all right? Your family frowned upon dishonesty. Lying and cheating, it's just not something garippas do. You can insert your last name in. And that code of ethics really suited you well. I mean, it was great in elementary school, middle school, fantastic, high school, even college. This idea of not being dishonest really, really worked well for you and kept you on the straight and narrow. But now you got your first job, so to speak. Now, now you've landed yourself in a job in that dream industry, and you're starting to work for that company. And you notice, it's not like it's in the employee manual, but it almost seems like dishonesty is a virtue there. That, that when you look at your coworkers and, and you sort of see how they act and, and maybe they don't disclose everything or they're just a little bit dishonest in some of their practices, it seems like they're getting ahead. They're the ones getting the promotions. They're the ones who, who are getting, you know, a bigger paycheck. They're the ones who are really having success. But you now find yourself in this dilemma because you were raised not to be like this. So what do you do? Well, you could continue working there and just sort of feel dirty every day. You could quit. Okay? It's not really a good option because you've got bills to pay and mouths to feed, so you really can't quit. Or maybe, maybe what, maybe what your parents taught you about dishonesty, maybe that was just a little too black and white for the real world. Maybe, maybe that belief system was just a little too naive for, for the industry that you're, I mean, look, your, your coworkers, they don't seem to have any issues with what they're doing. So maybe, maybe, maybe it's just that. Maybe that's not your scenario. Maybe for you, you were raised to have respect for your body. You were raised to have a, a different view of timing, so to speak, right? Let's wait till marriage. You know what I'm talking about. And that worked well for you for your entire life, all throughout your teenage years, maybe even into your 20s, but now you're in your late 20s. Now you're in your 30s. Maybe you're in your early 40s and you're, and you're single. And you find yourself in a dating pool that just doesn't have the same sense of morality as you do. And it's tough. And you're not really having a hard time getting dates, but you're having a hard time building relationships because it seems like they go so far and then you hit that obstacle and you know the obstacle that I'm talking about. And you're getting lonelier and you're getting older and you find yourself in a dilemma. And you start to think, well, what, what do I do? Well, well, maybe, maybe this code of ethics that was instilled in me so many years ago, maybe that's just a little too naive for who I am right now. 
Whatever the scenario is, because there's myriad scenarios, I just chose two that I thought you guys could, you know, hook up with there. Whatever the scenario is, the reality is clear, that we changed the way that we behaved, which changed the way that we believed. All our life, we had these core values that we held near and dear, and we changed those. And we didn't change them by, you know, doing any kind of research. We didn't look into scriptures and pour over God's word to see what he has to say about it. You didn't go to your parents and ask them. You didn't go to your pastor and ask his input. All you did was you allowed culture and your environment or your friend circle or the dating pool to influence what you believe. And you change what you believe to fit the environment you are in. And what you've done by doing that is you've opened yourselves up to what I call immovable standards. This was concept introduced to me when I was in high school. See, for most of your life, you believe that there was a clear-cut picture of what was right and what was wrong, and that made a difference in your life. But now you've muddied the waters. You've allowed temptations to make your belief system inconvenient. And so what did you do? You just changed your belief system to make life more convenient. And we do this cavalierly. Not always, but many times we just do this and we don't really think about the impact that it has on our life. But do you know the message you are sending yourself when you change your beliefs? You're telling yourself that what you believed wasn't worth believing. That what your mother and your father taught you so many years ago, what your grandparents tried to instill in you, what your school tried to instill in you, what your church tried to instill in you, that that wasn't worth believing. Which means that what you believe today probably isn't worth believing. Which means that what you believe tomorrow probably won't be worth believing, and what you believe the day after that probably won't be worth believing also. And away we go. Chip, chip, chip. Your faith begins to crumble. The other issue we deal with is unmet expectations. So perhaps you were raised to believe that God would never. God would never. But then as you got older, it seemed like God did sometimes. Or you were told that, that God would always. But it seems like God doesn't sometimes. Or, or if I do, God will. That if I do A and I do B and I do C, God will do D, E, and F. And you spent your whole life doing A, B, C. You even did a little bit of D. And it's like God is not holding up his end of the bargain. What's going on? And slowly these unmet expectations begin to chip away and chip away and chip away at your faith. Why? Because God is not doing what God ought to be doing. This is what we tell ourselves. Because we were told God would do one thing, or we told ourselves that God would do another thing. We knew that God operated in a certain way. We even figured out a formula for God. And if I go to church twice a month and I pray in the mornings, and he's going to give me the things that you know, we all do this, okay? And all of a sudden it doesn't work, and our faith begins to crumble. So I'll just say this. If you are a person who you find yourself often saying that God is not doing what he ought to be doing, if you find yourself often changing your system of beliefs to suit the environment that you are in, what you are dealing with is circumstantial faith. This is the issue we have to talk about today, circumstantial faith. Because if you are someone who has lost your faith, if you are a Christian who, whose faith is not as strong as you wish it could be, I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that the foundation of your faith at some level are circumstances, what's going on in your life. 
Let me define circumstantial faith because it's not like a theological term. Circumstantial faith is this. It's this idea that our faith is based upon our ability to find God in our circumstances. Okay? It's our ability to find God and to see God in our circumstances. And if you are honest with yourself and you look back over your life, so much of what you knew about God, so much of what you knew about your relationship with him was based on what you could see and what you experienced. And we all struggle with this. No one is exempt from this. We all struggle with this in some aspect of our lives, with some issue in our lives, at some point in our lives. But what you need to know and, and the takeaway for today is that you have to understand how fragile circumstantial faith is. It is unbelievably fragile. One of the reasons it's so fragile is that well, we're not good at interpreting our circumstances. I mean, if you're going to base your faith around your circumstances, you should at least be good at interpreting them. We're not good at that. We're terrible at this, okay? For example, let's say you're praying for something, because we're all praying for something. Praying for, you know, a raise or a date. I know a lot of people in this church are praying for dates, okay? And, 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 and you're not finding any dates, and it, and it seems like it's taking a long time. And what begins to happen is you, you begin to say, well, well, maybe God is not as active in my life as I thought he was. Maybe God doesn't love me as much as I thought he did. That's not the case. The reality is that we're not good at seeing the big picture. If I were to go into a dentist's office and there was like a three-year-old sitting in the waiting room, right? Three or four-year-old. Who knows when they start going to the dentist? I don't know, okay? They're there. Work with me here, okay? And I go over to the kid and I say, let me ask you a question, kid. Well, Jimmy, do your parents love you? You know what they would say? No. Can you tell the good people at DHC why? Because... They're going to bring me in that room pretty soon. They're going to put me in that chair. They're going to plight in my face, the thing around my neck, and they're going to start jabbing, you know, spikes in my mouth. And don't you love, by the way, this is, as I'm thinking about it, when you're there and they go, oh, little, your gums are bleeding a little bit today. Do you floss? Yeah, that's the reason why they're bleeding, okay? Nothing to do with that pick, okay? <laughs> if you were to ask that kid what he thinks about your love in that moment, they would say, no, mom and dad or grandpa, they do not love me, but you know his parents, the very fact that you brought them to the dentist means you love them. It just shows you that at an early age, we misinterpret our circumstances. Here's another one. Let's say something bad happens to you, right? Let's just say let's, you get laid off, okay? Because at some point in our life, we all get laid off. And you don't understand why. You are a good employee. You're a good person. It's just this doesn't make any sense at all. Time goes by. One year, two years, three years, whatever the case may be. And you look back over your life and you say, you know what? That was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. In fact, I would go as far as to say as that was a total God thing. I can't begin to tell you how many stories just in this church alone. I've heard of people losing their jobs, were downcast, only to have some amazing opportunity to present itself. And the reality is that you would have never had this amazing opportunity but for the fact that you lost your job. But if you were to envision God's love for you in that moment, when you're sitting on your couch and everybody else is working, if you were to envision God's love in that moment, you would question his love. You would question him. You, you might even question his existence. Why? Because we let our circumstances dictate our belief in God. Another reason. We have, uh, we're bad at interpreting, uh, interpreting, it's not a word, interpreting our circumstances, is that our timelines, they're not long enough. 
So when we pray to God, we often, you might not realize this, we think of God as sort of a cosmic concierge. Whatever we ask, he gives it to us, right? Isn't that nice how that works? And so if you're like me, which you are, you pray, dear God, I need a, you know, a new car, fine. And you open your eyes to see if it's there. And when it's not, you're like, mm, this is a problem. This is an issue. Like this is, he normally does these for me. The problem is that when we pray and when we ask God to do something, we're looking at our watch. Meanwhile, God's looking at the calendar. See, we as humans can only see five, ten feet out ahead of us. But God is operating on such a larger time scale. I mean, do you know that God can see the past? He can see the present. He can see the future. He can see it all simultaneously. So when we put a request into God behind the scenes, he is orchestrating and choreographing this beautiful dance in our life. Meanwhile, when we don't see him acting, we begin to evaluate God's faithfulness on our own timeline. Why? Because our timeline suits us. We want things done now, immediately, today, tomorrow. Maybe, God, I'll give you two weeks. But that timeline doesn't work for God. And when we don't see him acting, we begin to question him, his presence in our life, and we begin to think that something is wrong. One of the greatest examples in Scripture of this sort of idea or concept is the life of Joseph. We won't get into it, but it's one of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible. Joseph, we mentioned him in this series. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was the guy who went on to be the prime minister of Egypt. Essentially, that was his title. He was the reason that the Jewish people ended up in Egypt. But what's so interesting about his story is that for 13 years, they're about 13, 14, 15, God does nothing in his life. Just, he's silent. And all the while, his brothers try to kill him. Then they decide, you know what? Let's just sell him into slavery. Then he gets thrown into jail He has all kinds of accusations thrown at him. And God, as far as Joseph knows, is doing nothing. But we as an audience, we know that God is operating behind the scenes the whole time. But Joseph doesn't know any of this. And yet he never lost faith. What would that story look like if Joseph began to think about and envision God's love for him while he was in that jail? While he was sold into slavery, it would be a quite a different story. As we're talking about circumstances and events and all this kind of a thing, there is some irony in this whole discussion because God will often use a set of circumstances to launch our faith. A lot of times you'll hear these stories in baptism testimonies. You'll hear someone who went through a trying ordeal or they lost someone or is the end of a relationship or maybe somebody just dragged them to church and whatever the case may be. In that moment, in that event, in that set of circumstances, whatever they were, God became real for the first time in their life. For the first time in their life, in that moment, they felt God's presence like they had never felt before. And yes, God used that moment in your life, that set of circumstances to launch your faith. But he never meant for those circumstances, for that event and that situation to be the foundation of your faith, because that moment is gone. That moment has passed. Here's why I give you all of these examples. Because there is going to come a time when you'll need to lean on your faith. And if your faith is leaning on your circumstances, you are setting yourself up for a shaky faith. 
Because our faith was never supposed to be based upon what we experience and what we see and our ability to sort of make sense of the world around us. So as we rebuild our faith from scratch for an adult life, let me show you exactly what the foundation of your faith was supposed to be. We're going to look in the book of Hebrews today. I'm just going to look at one verse. And the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. We've not spent a lot of time on this book, so let me briefly explain to you what this book is about. Number one, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's anonymous. For about 1,200 years, they thought Paul wrote it. Now we're not sure if he wrote it. Some people think a guy named Apollo. Doesn't matter. What matters is who the audience is. That's where it gets interesting. Because the audience of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, um, they are Jewish converts. So these are people who used to be Jewish, and now they're Christians. And what's interesting is that the author paints this picture as though they have very, let's call it, um, immature faith. They're struggling, okay? And they're struggling with their faith for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're struggling because they are enduring really, really bad persecution. They, they are living in a primarily Jewish culture, but they are enduring Roman persecution. They are being killed left and right, and it's getting worse, and they're being killed simply because they said yes to Jesus. Second of all, there's a little bit of, of, of theological confusion for them because they were under the impression that Jesus, after he died, after he went back to heaven, they were under the impression that he was going to be coming back, the second coming of Christ, any day. Like, like it was going to happen so quickly, it was like, don't make a cup of coffee. He's going to be here, okay? Don't, you should sell your stuff. You don't need your stuff. He's, he's going to be here. And he wasn't showing up. And, and they're confused. Now, Jesus never said he was coming back that soon. Jesus painted a picture like the entire world would have to know who he is before he comes back. That's not Jesus' fault. And so with this audience, what you have is you have a group of people, brand new Christians, who, who are looking at their life and they're saying, well, things aren't going the way that I thought they would go. I mean... We thought we'd become Christians and it'd be smooth sailing. It's not. We, we thought that Jesus was going to do one thing, and so God's not doing what God ought to be doing. And so what is happening is that they are seriously considering abandoning their faith, packing it in and walking away. And the entire book of Hebrews is this author pleading with them, pleading. He's saying, please, 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 do not abandon your faith because of your circumstances. And then he tells them what the foundation of their faith is. And I'm just going to walk us through this one verse. He says this, Hebrews 4, 14. But Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest. Now, we hear this and we go, oh, what does that kind of mean? We think high priest, is that like a, is that like a Catholic priest? It's not. But his original audience would have known immediately what he was talking about. In Jewish culture, they were expecting that in the last days, in the final days, there would be one last great high priest who would offer a final atoning sacrifice for them. This author is saying, that's Jesus. That great high priest that we've been praying for and waiting for, that is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, our great high priest, has made access to God available to us. He continues. He says, who has gone to heaven itself to help us? This whole phrase, number one, it's in the past tense, but this whole phrase, who has gone to heaven itself to help us, this is him summarizing 
Jesus' entire earthly ministry. You read the rest of Hebrews. It's exactly what he's talking about. He goes, goes, look, look, look. Guys, we have a great high priest who was sent from heaven, who was born in this world, born of a woman, who had flesh, who walked amongst us, who taught us, who performed miracles, who cured the sick, who raised the dead, who died on the cross, who came back to life. We have all of this. Therefore, he says, let us never stop trusting in him. Let me sort of recap what he's saying here. He's saying, guys, I understand that life is not working out the way that you thought life would work out. I understand that it's difficult being a Christian in a primarily Jewish culture. I understand that Jesus and God are not acting the way that we thought they would work, but do not stop believing. Why? Well, certainly not because of your circumstances. Do not stop believing. Because in our lifetime, and he's speaking to people that were there, he goes, in our lifetime, there was a man who was born in this world, who claimed that he came from God, who walked amongst us, who, who taught us. We saw him do miracles. Some of you saw him walk on water, who raised people from the grave, who died on the cross. That's in our lifetime. Some of you guys were there at the cross. What is reminding every single person in that audience that day is that the foundation of their faith and our faith is Jesus. Not what we can see, not what we can experience, Jesus Christ. The reason that we believe when things are good and the reason that we believe when things are bad is because something happened 2,000 years ago in history, the resurrection. And that's a game changer because this kind of faith sets us free from our circumstances. This kind of faith sets us free from what we see and what we're experiencing. Essentially what this author is doing is giving them a challenge and giving us a challenge. To have faith in spite of our circumstances. For them, that was having faith in spite of persecution. For us, it's faith in spite of losing your job. It's having faith in spite of getting a bad diagnosis from the doctor. It's having faith in spite of losing someone close to you. This is powerful faith. Have you ever met somebody who has just gone through so much? Just life is just not good for them. And you look at them and you go, how do you have the kind of joy that you have? How do you have the, the, the peace that you, how is your faith so on fire? How is your faith so strong? You've met people like that. I have. The answer is simple. Their faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus, not their current circumstances. And I am blown away by people that have this kind of faith. When they say to you, John, it doesn't matter that I lost my job. It doesn't matter that, that my health is declining. Because my faith is built on the cross. I get my hope and I get my strength because of the resurrection, because my sins were forgiven. It's not based on my circumstances. That would be a recipe for disaster. My faith is built on Jesus Christ alone. The author of Hebrews wraps up this amazing conversation. 
by saying this. He goes, let us keep looking. Present tense. Let us keep looking to Jesus. He is the one who started this journey of faith. And he is the one who completes this journey of faith. He's saying Jesus is the critical element in every single one of our faiths. He continues. He paid no attention to the shame of the cross. He suffered there because of the joy he was looking forward to. That's heaven. Then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is why we can trust him. He wraps up by saying this. He made it through these attacks by sinners. So think about him. Then you won't get tired. You won't lose hope. The foundation of our faith is not an event in our life. It's not what you can see. It's not what you experience. It's not even what you feel. Our faith is founded on and based on and rooted in Jesus Christ. And right now, your faith is leaning on something. And you owe it to yourself to figure out what that is. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word on the screen because I want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So your first practical, can't make it any more simple. Do you struggle with circumstantial faith? Has today's discussion put a spotlight on an issue in your life? Has it brought to the surface the fact that there may be some things in your life, there may be some issues in your life that always seem to trip you up and it's different for everybody? Maybe it's employment, maybe it's finances, maybe it's your health, maybe it's the future, but is there some issue in your life that you seem to lean heavily on and when that thing isn't going the way that you think it should be going, you start to question God's love for you and God's presence in your life? And if that's you, that's okay. You're human. We all go through that. In fact, do you know who had the biggest case of circumstantial faith that I know of? The disciples. This, 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 this was their life for most of their ministry with Jesus. Whenever something went wrong, their faith faltered. Any kind of storm, their faith faltered. When it was at the end, when they saw Jesus on the cross, when they saw him die, the only thing they believed was that he was dead. And they walked away and they went back to usual. But when they saw him come back to life, the foundation of their faith changed from their circumstances to the resurrection. And you see a picture of a couple of men whose lives flipped and they were set on fire and they charged the world and they started churches and they preached boldly and they went on to write the New Testament. Second one is this. You can't lean on Jesus if you don't know him. Scripture says clearly, and I hopefully I've shown you this today, that the foundation of our faith is and should be Jesus Christ. And many of us in this room know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And for a lot of us, that's about the extent of it. We get most of our information about Jesus from what you hear on a Sunday. You come here, and I get it, it's, it's easy. You show up, and you hear a couple of one-liners, and you see some good slides, and, and you walk away with having learned something more. But let me be really honest with you. You need to be reading the Bible. You just do. Because the Bible is filled with God's promises. 
The Bible is filled with God's wisdom for almost every circumstance that you will find yourself in. And it's filled with God's wisdom letting you know what he is doing in your life and through your life. But if you don't know God's promises, you're flying blind. Because I can guarantee a circumstance is going to befall you. Things are going to look dark. Things might start getting scary. Your faith might begin to get a little shaky and all the while. The scripture had the answer that you needed, that anchor that you were looking for. And you may say, John, well, I, I, I've tried to read the Bible. I can't. It's just, it's, it's too confusing. And I understand that. And I'll just say this. If you have a Bible at home that sounds like Shakespeare, okay, because I know a lot of you do, you were said, get the King James Version. Look, here's the deal. I'm not going to tell you to throw it out, but throw it out. No, just don't stop you, okay? And I, you don't need to go and buy a new Bible. Do what I do. Here's what I, here, this, is, this is as practical as it gets. Go to BibleGateway.com and start reading the NLT version. This is essentially the version that we read here. You need a Bible that you can understand. You need a Bible that's written for someone who lives in 2019, not in 1610 Elizabethan England. Get one that you can understand so that you can begin to build your faith and supplement what you learn about Jesus Christ on a Sunday. This week as you marinate on all of this, remember, don't look to your circumstances. Look up to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to come here today. Lord, that you've provided a building that we could all just come together and have some fun and learn more about your son. But Lord, in this series, as we are talking about rebuilding our faith, we, we have come to an issue today that I think so many of us struggle with. So many of us have, have gone through things and have lost people and have lost jobs and, 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 and we're so desperately trying to find you in it, Lord. And when we can't figure you out and we can't pin you down, we begin to lose our faith. We're all trying to know you more. Some of us, God, are just clinging for our, our lives in terms of our faith. It's just holding on by our fingernails. And I pray that today by the power of the Holy Spirit that every single person in this room would know your son Jesus, not in an academic way, but in a personal way. That we would know that he came to this earth that was a historical event. That he walked amongst the audience of Hebrews. He performed miracles. He taught us how to live. And that he died on the cross. Not just to save us from our sins, but to set us free from them. Allow us, God, to leave this room today on fire. Like the disciples after they saw you after the cross. God, change our faith. Embolden us to see you in a new and powerful way. Allow us, Lord, to always keep our eyes on Jesus. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen.